So uh, we're continuing in our series called So. It's an inquiry into Christian beliefs. And we're covering some of the, the major themes and topics and questions that have been a part of the Christian tradition from the very beginning. We've been covering topics like what is sin? What's wrong with the world? Um, we covered what does uh, Jesus's death mean? Last week, we talked about what is salvation. And now we're moving into the first part of uh, two lessons that will cover hell and heaven. And we decided we would start with the bad news first. So, uh, we'll, so today we'll be talking about hell, not necessarily because any of the teachers here particularly enjoy talking about it, but it is one of those foundational questions that Christians have grappled with for millennia. And it is one that we know is on many of your all's minds as well. Um, especially uh, many of you are on a journey um, in your thoughts about so many doctrines that you had been taught as a child that were central to your faith and central to understanding that you're in the process of kind of sorting through and reevaluating. So we uh, figured we should not shy away from, uh, from this topic uh, in this series. Um, so I understand if uh, part of the way you're thinking about the title for this series is more like that, that kind of embodies when, maybe where your thoughts are right now uh, on the subject. Now, one thing to keep in mind uh, for this discussion today is that I am not going to tell you what you should believe about hell. Um, what I am going to do is tell you things that you should be aware of um, when you think about how you want to think about hell. Because there are all sorts of factors that we need to consider that maybe aren't on the top of your mind uh, when you think about when you're sorting through uh, your own understanding on such an important doctrine. So the, the, the way that I'm going to tackle this is we're going to talk about what the Bible says or doesn't say on the subject. We'll actually cover all of the, the major passages that, that uh, end up in the discussion about hell. Um, we'll talk about where some of our most common ideas about hell came from. And uh, we'll talk about what are some of the different views that followers of Jesus have held on the subject over the centuries. So it might seem uh, at first thought that there are a lot of moving parts to keep track of when you're thinking about the topic of hell. These are some well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ's attempt to uh, diagram out. If you took all of the passages in the Bible that seem to talk about hell, uh, this, is, this is an attempt to chart out exactly what happens after you die, uh, depending on what you do. It almost looks like a game of shoots and ladders uh, in some ways, and it can be that apparently that treacherous. Um, I am going to suggest to you that I don't think it has to be that complicated. Um, I also, uh, I came up with my own version of, uh, you know, a, a flow chart for what happens. This is, uh, this is for my fellow uh, Led Zeppelin and ACDC uh, friends in, in the, in our midst, but uh, I also don't think it's necessarily this simple. But the, uh, one of the things that will help us uh, in the rest of this discussion first and foremost, is we have to move away from trying to do what's, what's called systematic theology. And that is taking all of the passages that the Bible has on this subject and trying to piece them together in some kind of puzzle where once you have it, you have a clear step-by-step -step understanding of what happens after you die and very uh, like a clear flow chart of, you know, you do X, you end up in Y. And if you don't, you end up in Z. 
Um, we want to avoid that because um, I would challenge the assumption that Bible writers are even trying to do that when they talk about hell. Uh, we should kind of think of it less like a constitution, as if the Bible's laying out rules on how to think about hell, and more like a collage, a uh, collection of images or snapshots that different writers at different times use to describe this concept of hell for the purposes of motivating their audiences to understand the situation that they find themselves in in their present context. We often read a lot of these passages in hell that, uh, about how that writers are bringing up in the Bible, and we automatically think that they are talking about what will happen to their audience after they die, as opposed to the very more pressing practical reality is that these writers are often using hell language to help them understand the present predicament they find themselves in. So, It'll help for us to kind of go through as a survey the, a basic, uh, the basic set of images that come up when we talk about hell and to not try to systematically piece them together. A lot of these images, um, as you can imagine, are contradictory if you try to piece them together. For example, one common image of hell is outer darkness. Another one is fiery flames. Those two images inherently are, they are contradictory. It wouldn't make sense to try to piece together what hell is like uh, based on literal understandings of either of those. And there are many other images like that where it will not make sense to try to put it together. The best way to approach it is to just sit with all of the images in their contexts and try to piece together from there what we can know and really what we can't. So let's start with the most common image that occurs in the Hebrew scriptures. So before we get to Jesus and the New Testament, let's start with the texts that Jesus and his fellow uh, New Testament writers and followers were operating from. The, one of the most common images that occur for what we often translate as hell in our Bibles is Sheol, uh, which you can best understand it as a gloomy realm of the dead type experience. This is an example of a psalmist using that phrase. Come back to me, Lord, deliver me, save me for the sake of your faithful love. No one is going to praise you when they are dead. Who gives you thanks from the grave? The word there for the grave, that is Sheol. So really, it's just they're using that term to describe the realm of the dead. Another partner uh, phrase that comes with it is Abaddon, which is described as a place of destruction. So another psalmist would say, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? So there you have the word Sheol and Abaddon occurring together. In these two examples I gave you, part of what these psalmists are doing is saying, God, please save me because then I can praise you. After all, if I die in the realm of the dead, no one's praising you. That's kind of how they're appealing to God in that context. So it, the, this common image, it paints this picture of, of uh, hate or Sheol in this, as this uh, realm where uh, there is no praise of God. It's kind of the end. It's the graveyard. That's how, that is a common way that uh, these he, the writers of Hebrew scripture are looking at it. When you look at it this way, too, you realize that they don't have the kind of view of uh, what you're doing after you die that we often do. For example, we would think that as soon as I die, perhaps the first thing I'm doing is praising God wherever I am with Jesus, celebrating victoriously. That's not how they're looking at it. They're looking at it as a place where nothing's really going on and where there's no really praise of God or, or reactions to God either way. 
another way of thinking through um, just how they thought about life after you die is David replied, so this is uh, the um, famous story in which David is given news that he is going to lose the baby that he has had with Bathsheba. And while he is waiting to figure out whether the baby will actually die or not, he is fasting and he's praying to God to see if the outcome will change. But the outcome doesn't change. The baby dies. And then here is David's reaction after that when people confront him saying, uh, like, hey, the, your baby just died and why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you mourning that your baby is dead? And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may have mercy on me and let the child live, but he is dead now. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, I'm going to where he is, but he won't come back to me. The concept of Sheol or destruction, this idea fits with the Hebrew understanding for much of the Old Testament that when you die, that's it. That's reflected in Job's negative uh, statement, negative rhetorical question where he says, if someone die, will they live again? In this context, he is describing his abject suffering that he's experiencing, and uh, he actually is ranting to God saying, it would be better off if I was dead. That would be a better situation. And he uh, raises this question to say, if I die, surely that will be the end of living through this stuff. So then when you think about how uh, he, people in the Hebrew scriptures are thinking about what's going to happen to them, really, it's less about this idea of uh, eternal bliss in a place called heaven and eternal torment in a place called hell. It's more about life and death the way that they're experiencing it in their own moment. We often think of the way, we have a, like a much more uh, finite view of concepts like life and death. It's like either you're alive or you're not. We talk about it scientifically or physically and physiologically and naturally, but that's not solely how he, uh, the Hebrew scriptures talked about it. They think about life and death as things that are, they're tied to whether you're physically alive or not, but more it's tied to the way that you're living your life. The Torah, in its summary towards the end, after it's laid out the covenant between God and Israel, summarizes the, uh, the covenant that they're making this way. The author says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. The, in, the readers of this uh, document would not have thought that uh, choosing life or death meant if I don't follow God at any moment, I will die immediately. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about a way of life that is connected to God that results in a true, vibrant, graceful life that God intends. And not following God and being disconnected from God in that community meant a life that really was death. We use phrases like this when we talk about versions of lives that we live. When we say, live your best life, that's what we mean. We say that, so this is how Israel would have been understanding their covenant with God, is this is a matter of either I can live a life that is truly worth living, connected with God, or I can live a life that's basically death. That is how they were talking about it. But also notice that in the Torah, in, uh, in motivating Israel to choose life, nowhere in this, uh, this equation is a threat that if they choose death, what they will experience is eternal conscious torment. 
where, you know, it's choose life or choose an experience where right after you die, that begins uh, out of your mind, pain and agony that will go on forever, forever and ever without abatement. That simply would not have been in the consideration set at the time that this was written. Now, there is uh, a diversity of views on what happens after you die that really flourished in the time between the Hebrew scriptures, the the time period that the Hebrew scriptures cover and uh, the time period that the New Testament covers. So there's a couple centuries before Jesus in which the Jewish people engaged in a lot of reflection and fleshing out of their own thoughts on what happens after you die. And that's when you get other concepts that enter uh, the biblical framework. Um, Some of those are part of uh, the good news, like you start uh, getting phrases like paradise, and Abraham's bosom uh, as places that, that the followers of God may rest. But then you also get, uh, that's, the, that's the good place. We're talking about the bad place this week. Pastor Danielle can, can deal with all of the, the positive images of what happens after you die. There are some interesting um, images of the bad place that show up during this time that were fleshed out for Israel in the midst of other cultures. So the term Hades actually starts showing up quite a bit in the New Testament, uh, whereas it doesn't um, in the you know, original uh, audiences uh, for, for the Hebrew scriptures. Now, this term comes from Greek philosophy, and it's basically uh, thinking of uh, an underground, uh, an underworld um, that's a graveyard. It's very much um, uh, akin to what the purpose that Sheol served in the, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures. Another example of, a, of, of an image or snapshot that uh, writers in that period used for, for hell is Tartarus. This one's especially interesting because Tartarus had a lot of folkloric connotations in, uh, in the surrounding mythology uh, in the Greco-Roman world. And there was a dungeon of fallen angels. And Second Peter actually seems to use the term that way. It's quite puzzling. Nevertheless, it's there. That's an example of, a, of an image that New Testament writers use to describe what's going on. And then we have probably the term in the New Testament that you most closely associate with hell. And that is actually where our word hell uh, comes from. And that is Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. So the Valley of Hinnom is this, uh, it's this place. It's actually a physical location. It originated as a physical location right outside uh, Jerusalem. Historically, in Israel's memory, it would have been the place where some of the most evil kings in Israel's history had done some of the most detestable unjust actions in breaking their covenant with God. That was a place where child sacrifice occurred by, by Israelites to appease foreign gods. So it became, in Israel's mind, this place that represented where corpses go to rot outside of God's city. It had taken on this mythic tone where by the time you get to Jesus's day, when people talk about Gehenna or the destruction that is associated with Gehenna, it's no longer really literally talking about that place. It's kind of taken on its own meaning uh, in and of itself. Now, when Jeremiah declared it as accursed, that began this, this approach of thinking about uh, Gehenna as this, this place of ultimate dis- destruction. Jesus, uh, of all people in the entire New Testament, used this term, talks about hell 
uh, way more than anybody else. In fact, of the dozen times that Gehenna is used in the Bible, Jesus uses it all but one time. The one time he's not using it, his brother, James, is using it in that book. So really, that's a family term from, from Jesus' household. And maybe Mary was the one teaching it to them. That was like her, her snapshot of how to think about uh, the destruction that, uh, that is associated with God's wrath. And, and it worked for Jesus and James, and that's what they ran with. So it is true that Jesus did talk about hell um, in this, using this term more than anybody else did. But there are some things that we need to keep in mind when we, uh, when we make that claim. Uh, because um, when Jesus uses it, it tells us a lot about um, what, whether he's talking about what happens to you after you die or uh, whether he's talking about some very uh, some huge concerns that he has about the present situation of his audience. So Jesus, he first uses this term in the Gospels to describe the upside-down nature of the ethics of the kingdom of God. So he uses in phrases uh, that are probably very familiar to you. So this is when he's talking about, uh, in this context, uh, he's talking about the dangers of lust and adultery. And if he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your, for, for your whole body to go to hell. That's using the word Gehenna there uh, when, when he gives this warning. And he also uh, similar, uses similar language to describe the relationship between anger and murder. He's basically saying that if you think murder is bad, you should be worrying about anger, which often is the root of murder. And he says, he even describes that if you're, if you're expressing this kind of anger, you are uh, in danger of entering this hellfire. His brother James uses it in a similar way about these kingdom ethics where, uh, where hell is the appropriate term to describe how hard it is to, uh, to, to uh, maintain our wholeness in the way that we relate to each other. Have you ever uh, been in a fight, like a verbal fight with somebody, somebody that you love or a family member, and you, uh, you know, at some point the fight less, it becomes less about whatever it was that started the fight. And then you quickly enter this very dark phase in that argument where all you're trying to do is make it hurt. You want that person to feel pain for even bringing up whatever it is that caused this objection in the first place. When you're in that moment, it's, it's what we call the heat of anger. It is fire. That's how we describe it. It's this kind of destruction that often happens so fast that before you know it, you have said things that you immediately regret. You wish you could take it away, but what you have said results in sometimes irreconcilable, irreversible damage. In those cases, you might often wish that maybe it would have been better if you had cut off your tongue than actually finished what you were saying. That is the kind of language that Jesus is using when he's talking about cutting off your, uh, your hand or gouging out your eye before something so serious happens that it is like a fire that consumes you. That's how James uses, James uses it to describe the uh, hellfires of the tongue. That was the, that's the language that he's using. 
There's another time that Jesus uh, uses this word he, when he's encouraging his followers to go out and proclaim the good news of the coming kingdom to, uh, to the neighboring towns. He tells them to not be afraid of the reactions that they're going to get from people when they face persecution for what they're doing. He says, instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, in Gehenna. So here you see, again, he's using this image as a place for destruction of your total person. And then uh, towards the end of the Gospels, uh, when Jesus is uh, confronting, towards the end of his life, he is confronting the religious establishment of his day. He, uh, he, this is when he goes on a, a list of woes. It's a, a litany of offenses or grievances that he has against the religious leadership where he says, woe to you, you Pharisees. He'll say, you brood of vipers, uh, how will you escape being condemned to hell, to Gehenna? In this description, too, it's important to note uh, who the target is in Jesus' uh, Jesus' mind when he uses terms like this. He is describing, or he's using hell to warn uh, the people in his community who had the power and the status and the resources to maintain the status quo and fight the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching. We often think of using the threat of hell to compel outsiders— to want to become insiders. That is a classic way that we have construed preaching about uh, hell and having that as part of the good news that we preach over time. Jesus did not use it that way at all. In fact, Jesus uses this hell language exclusively as a warning to the people in his inner circle, to the people in his in-group who think that they've already got it all figured out, they're great as it is, and they will do what they can to maintain their status quo and maintain the powers that they have. Sometimes it takes language like Gehenna to describe how serious the consequences are for when people are willing to go through destructive routes without taking a, you know, a moment to pause to see if maybe it would be better to make a short-term sacrifice to save future destruction on a much more eminent scale. So that's that. Those are, the, those are the examples of when hell comes up in the Bible, in the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. So hell, I would say, from what you're seeing, would be deliberately vague. It basically revolved around death and destruction. This is why, because of the images that we've shown so far, that to the extent that Christians over the centuries have tried to come up with systematic images of what hell is like, one of the ones, one of the perspectives that has surfaced is this idea that hell is a place where you, where those who are outside of God cease to exist. It's a place of destruction. It's a place of death. Death is the characterization of what happens there. That perspective is called annihilationism, which actually sounds very harsh. But if the alternative that many people who come to that view are coming from is eternal conscious torment, then annihilationism doesn't seem as bad. Such is the context that we find ourselves in. Now, if, if the language that we've used so far kind of leans towards this idea of you know, I'm not really sure what happens after you die, but it seems to be for those who are outside of Jesus or those who are unable to heed Jesus' warning, the, uh, the outcome seems to be death. Then where did we get what's the most common idea, probably in the circles that we come from, that what happens after you die, if you are outside of Jesus, is this eternal conscious torment, something that goes on forever, and it is torture. How did we get to this kind of place where that's the majority view when it doesn't seem to match these images uh, that we've been reading? 
Well, it comes from two parts. Some of it comes from the Bible. Some of it comes from outside the Bible. So there are some images that uh, come from the Bible that followers of Jesus took and ran with further than we probably should have in terms of coming up with a doctrine of hell. So one example of an image that we've taken uh, possibly be further than, uh, than we should have is there is a parable that Jesus tells, a fictional story that has two characters, a rich man and Lazarus. And in the point that Jesus is making in this parable, there is a rich man who every day um, has this, uh, goes past this poor man, Lazarus, who's a beggar at his gate. And uh, in all of his cushy privilege that, that he lives in, he is uh, ignorant of the plight that Lazarus at his doorstep uh, is experiencing. And there is no justice for Lazarus. That's how the story is framed. And, the point that, and then uh, what Jesus does is he tells the story and he says, now imagine that both of them died. And in their death, they experience a reversal where Lazarus, this poor man, actually gets justice. He's pictured as resting in Abraham's bosom. And uh, the rich man finds himself in Hades. Hades is the word that Jesus uses to describe it. And in this scene in Hades, the rich man is crying out in agony. And he's actually uh, begging, uh, he's, you know, begging the, the storyteller to go and tell, you know, warn his relatives about the plight that he's in so they can avoid that fate. He's also talking to, or he's like asking Lazarus to come down and, uh, and help him because he's thirsty in these, this uh, Hades fire that he's experiencing. So from that, from that image, uh, many Christians over the centuries kind of took that literally and kind of ran with, that's what happens to people who, um, who are outside of God uh, when they die. They experience this kind of torment. But even the people who do that are, struggle to press that image literally. Most often in our conceptions of hell, we don't think of people in hell and heaven being able to see each other and talk to each other and being able to like debate with people who are still on earth. For some reason, we uh, let go of those literal images. We kept these other literal images. And so I think that's a huge problem. Nobody should be trying to take a parable, stories that Jesus tells that weren't even about the nature of what happens after you die. It was about this ironic reversal that comes with the kingdom of God, where people who uh, found themselves on the outside find themselves on the inside in Jesus and, and uh, uh, receive the justice that they were never uh, able to receive outside of Jesus. There are a couple more images, and they all come from an even more problematic place, and that's the, the book of Revelation, which by genre is an apocalypse. Practically, what that means is it's got a bunch of images on steroids, and it's almost impossible on a cursory reading to tell what on earth in those stories are literal and what on earth are not. So the fact that many of our images of eternal conscious torment comes from Revelation should give you pause alone. There's a couple phrases and images that come up in particular that have affected this debate. So in Revelation, um, at one point, the author describes worshipers of the beast. Uh, they are punished such that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. So that, for some, created the image that the torment that worshipers of the beast experience is something that happens uh, for eternity. There's, an, there's a parallel image with, that says that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are tormented day and night forever and ever. Those are, those are images that occur in the book of Revelation. Now, if we had time to actually study that and unpack what those phrases mean, I would tell you that 
I don't think that those passages are actually talking about what happens after you die. I think if we had to talk about who the beast is and what the fa- who the false prophet is, who the characters are in this story, um, we would realize that Revelation even is far less concerned with what will happen to you after you die and is far more concerned with the plight that the early audience that, that the author wrote that to uh, would be experiencing and offering them advice and hope on how to face that. So parables and apocalypses Literature deliberately untethered from reality are terrible places to draw concrete pictures of hell from. And yet, that's what we've done in coming up with our doctrine of eternal conscious torment. It would really be like trying to draw um, literal uh, descriptions of what Hollywood is like from, uh, if you've seen the David Lynch's movie, like surrealist movie, um, Mulholland Drive. So that's uh, like, you know, super famous, critically acclaimed movie. David Lynch is famous for making movies and TV shows that make absolutely no sense and require you to like read it a lot, talk to other people about it, do director's commentaries and all that kind of stuff. And they, and it, it can be very bizarre. And that is what revelation is like. And uh, it requires a level of scrutiny and translation to draw any kind of conclusions from texts like that. So a lot of how our current doctrine, our current common doctrine of eternal conscious torment comes from what I would say is mis- misappropriation of images from the Bible. But actually a lot, maybe even more of that comes from uh, Uh, influences outside of the Bible itself. There are three big dudes that uh, I want to bring up to help you kind of piece together how we got to where we are today with eternal conscious torment. Uh, These dudes were very influential in in our understanding of of hell, Um, and they are united uh, not only by their interest in their philosophy of the soul, but also clearly their epic beards. As uh, research has shown that uh, religious thoughts are 10% trendier when you have a beard uh, to go along with it. And they certainly, spanning a thousand years, have kept that style consistent. So the first one is Plato. Plato is a uh, a famous philosopher uh, in the Greco-Roman world. He He was the one who put this philosophy that the soul is separate from the body. So in other words, you have this body, and after you die, you have a soul, an eternal part of you that goes on forever, even after you die. Now, um, for Plato, he uh, believed that that soul that you have was pre-existent, so it always existed before you inhabited your body, and it will always exist even after you die, and it's eternal. That is where we got, as a Christian community, the idea that after you die, Whatever you are in your spiritual essence has to go on forever. Naturally, that raises the problem, right? If, uh, if your soul has to go on forever and you spent your life rejecting God, then what do you do? What do you do with a soul that, that you cannot destroy or end or let rest? Uh, what do you do with it when it has... Um, uh, when it has rejected God. So the second, uh, second big uh, influence on this view is Tertullian, who is a, he was a third century early church father from uh, North Africa. And he really ran with this, uh, this idea from Plato. He Christianized that concept. And he is the one who came up or uh, stylized the concept of an eternal hell as a parallel experience to eternal bliss. 
that followers of Jesus would experience. And not surprisingly, practically for him, um, you know, this doctrine was formulated in a time of intense persecution that followers of Jesus were facing. And, um, you know, there, there are many times when he targets this language of ex- deserving of eternal hell specifically to persecutors of followers of Jesus. And it's understandable why he would feel the need to do that. But that is when we develop this kind of idea of these, you know, parallel tracks for what happens after you die. And the third one is Augustine, who's a 5th century church father, um, also from North Africa. He's a Roman and uh, he, he is, uh, the reason that he matters here is because he happened to espouse Tertullian's view that the soul is immortal, that it goes on after you die, and that if you spent your life rejecting God, then you will experience, only naturally, logically, you would experience unending conscious torment. Uh, and because his views were so popular and so well-received, that kind of set us in the direction to embrace this as the common view or primary view of what it means um, to experience hell. Now, this, uh, this tradition, of course, was added on by uh, famous works of literature like Dante's Inferno. We should also remind you that, um, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the power of art, literature, and film in the way that it reinforces where we got our views about hell. Uh, Even, like, there's so much uh, artwork and movies and parodies that describe, like, hell as a place where Satan rules over the people who are there. That is never given as a description of hell in any of the images that we've talked about. But somehow he got that pitchfork, and he's, you know, tormenting people, and I guess Satan seems to be having a good time in hell, even though that's not at all how the the New Testament talks about Satan at all. This shift also, uh, this shift to these these kinds of images of hell as eternal places um, after you die um, moved us also away from thinking about hell as something you experience here and now as much as something you experience after you die. We talk often at Spark about the now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God, that in some ways the kingdom of God is breaking into this world, that we live in a world in which God's will is being done through followers of Jesus. But goodness and Jesus's power is in the process of overcoming and consuming everything. And all the evil forces that exist in this world are in the process of being expunged. New Testament writers actually describe hell or Gehenna or these concepts of destruction in the same way. That in some ways, we, based on the actions that we take in this life, are already bringing hell to each other, to ourselves. And it is one that can escalate very quickly out of hand and have reverberating consequences. In uh, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, uh, John 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We would, uh, maybe we would have thought that the way that, uh, that statement should go is... Um, you know, to the one who does not believe, they will be condemned after they die. But really what John is saying here is that a life that is lived increasingly out of connection with God, with Jesus, with love, with grace, with mercy, is one that begins to experience condemnation then and there, the moment you start living this life that can be characterized as death. 
This idea of wrath or destruction being something that we actually begin to experience already is one that other New Testament writers flesh out as well. When we talked about what does Jesus' death mean in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, we, we briefly touched on this idea of God's wrath. So the Apostle Paul has a description of God's wrath. So he does this in this opening chapter in his letter to the church in Romans. Part of his argument that he's making overall is telling two groups at this church, a group of Jewish followers of Jesus and a group of Gentile followers of Jesus, to not be racist to each other. And the way that he opens his argument to help them not be racist to each other is to have a shared humility about how good they think they are. And so he begins with a description, the description that basically it categorizes what a Gentile life looks like fully outside of God, experiencing the, the full brunt of God's wrath. And this is how he describes it. So he says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly and behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. And then he goes on to describe several behaviors that are exhibited when one is experiencing God's wrath and they are consciously turning away from God. He says, so God, let these people go their own way. He describes murder, slander, idolatry. He describes uh, temple cult prostitution, which inevitably would have involved exploitation and abuse of power and status. He describes lying. He describes family strife. He has this litany of behaviors that characterize what happens when you increasingly turn inward and away from God. But he also says, uh, he repeats it multiple times. He says, so God, let them follow their own evil desires. God, let their debased minds rule over them. The way that he's describing God's wrath here is not so much as something God is actively doing to people, as if there's a law where you do wrong and I have to punish you because tit for tat, an eye for an eye. That's not what's going on here. Paul is describing God's wrath as actually something that's self-inflicted. It's something people do to themselves. This is what Jesus meant also when he says, all who live by the sword die by the sword. That was his warning to his audience, his followers at the time and context that they found themselves in, that if you try to seek God's kingdom through the weapons and means of the world around you, inevitably you will fall like the world around you. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If you seek your own way of maintaining power and status, you will inevitably find yourself succumbing to it. This idea is echoed um, multiple times by many authors, many of uh, uh, whom are beloved among our audience. C.S. Lewis is an interesting case in point because this idea of God's wrath being less something that, you, uh, that God in anger or in wrath pours out on people, but rather kind of lets people experience themselves, that idea can be very controversial among some circles in, within Christianity that are really uh, devoted to trying to defend this view of eternal conscious torment. Those same circles tend to love C.S. Lewis, and they tend to have cognitive dissonance when you realize that C.S. Lewis is one of those people who's very impacted by Paul's own description of God's wrath. This is uh, to give him more credibility. I wanted to just add a beard onto him. Therefore, you'll take him more seriously uh, in, in what he's about to say. So in, uh, in his very famous uh, work, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. There's an image to describe hell as this self-inflicted place, this place that we put ourselves in with our own actions and beliefs. Uh, similarly, 
in, uh, in his book, The Great Divorce, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Now, you might even look at that and say, um, that is, that's interesting. That's something to think about. I don't know how much that characterizes uh, accurately the images that we've seen so far. But at the very least, it's worth noting that over the centuries, we have had a diversity of thoughts on what it actually looks like to experience God's wrath. Not all of them are consistent. Not all of them are the same. And uh, there are views that have existed uh, over time. Uh, Even before Jesus's time, there was a diversity of views and thoughts on what would happen to people after they die. Some people, uh, even in Jesus's time, were already believing that uh, after you die, it is a place where if you're outside of God, you will experience some kind of torment for eternity. Others were thinking, really, after you die, that's it. Um, There was, uh, during that time, this belief about resurrection evolved that Jesus spoke into and had a profound impact on how uh, people in the centuries that followed thought about uh, what happens after you die. What I wanted to do, though, was bring up one more last image or a thread of images that I think we need to discuss before I can say that you're aware of everything you need to be aware of if you want to go and have your own thoughts about hell. So that is... The, uh, the thread that I want to run us through is just this bright, optimistic note of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the last set of images that we'll talk about. So for Sodom and Gomorrah, this is, uh, if you recognize this city pairing, there is a story in Genesis. So early in the narrative of the Bible, where um, there is a town that is described as just absolutely corrupt and full of injustice. And Abraham, uh, the, the person through whom God has chosen to make his family known throughout the world, is called um, to, to leave his home and, uh, and head towards the promised land. And on his journey there, he, he encounters Sodom and Gomorrah. So there are, uh, you know, th- there's this discussion about what the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah should be, given the, the rampant injustice that exists in that area. And so while there's a, a couple of angels who are coming into town to sort out what the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be, um, the hosts of Sodom and Gomorrah, people who live there, true to form, um, they try to trap those angels and gang rape them, basically to have power and humiliate these strangers. And if you understood how hospitality worked in the ancient world, it would be even more offensive and scary and disastrous than what you're picturing now. When people travel from town to town, they were, they were vulnerable. They were at the whims of the communities they found themselves in. And for angels of God, To be greeted in this way was supposed to be a symptom of exactly everything that was wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the way the story ends for Sodom and Gomorrah is they experience God's wrath. We don't know how it worked out. Very well could be self-inflicted from the way that we describe it. But here's the the final note that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, are meted with. The Lord rained down burning asphalt from the skies onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So the place just gets utterly destroyed. That is the language that, that 
the Genesis writer uses for it. The language that he uses, these, these phrases, uh, there's fire, like uh, there, uh, fire and smoke, and then there was burning asphalt that's also um, brimstone. So fire and brimstone. When we talk about that as hell, we're getting it from Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is the paradigmatic image in Bible writers' minds for the destruction that awaits the absolutely unjust systems that exist in this world. Now, there are other writers that, uh, that um, reflect on this, uh, this image of destruction. And before we go further, I think it's worth making a, a side note because I think often, too, the way, that we've t- the way we often think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is we relate it to gay sex. But that's actually not what Bible writers themselves do. So Ezekiel, in actually uh, offering what he's describing as a wrath that Israel is about to experience for their rejection of him, he, he actually compares, uh, the, the prophet compares what's about to happen to Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were arrogant and did detestable things before me. That is Bible writer's own description for why Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the judgment that it did. Now, prophets will often use Sodom and Gomorrah as an image or a metaphor for the kind of destruction that awaits other enemies of God or other uh, enemy empires. So Isaiah, for example, uses it here. He says, Now Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. Jeremiah uses it as well. He says, It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns, says the Lord. No one will live in Edom no human will dwell in it. This is his warning. This is the prophet's warning to Edom. He says, it'll, what'll happen to you is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. New Testament writers use it similarly, although Jesus uses it with a twist. So this is uh, when he is uh, talking about the experience that his disciples are going to have when they go out to other towns and are vulnerable. They are guests. They are strangers at the mercy of the communities that they're in. He warns them. He says, if anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or city. I assure you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on judgment day than it will be for that city. So again, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as a reference point for final judgment. But it seems like there are worst fates that one can experience than what Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. So maybe it's not all bad for Sodom and Gomorrah, even though the images that we just saw earlier seem to kind of describe it as like, that's it. There is nothing good ever going to happen again. Second Peter uses uh, Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment as well. He says, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Fine. I get it. Very final sounding. Except there is an image just a few verses after the one that, Ezekiel, that I read to you from Ezekiel where he talks about what the sin of Sodom was that caused them to experience that kind of destruction and the warning that Israel was going to experience that same destruction. Just after that, the prophet says to Israel about Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, however, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them. So this audience, Israel, is about to go into captivity they have abandoned God and they are experiencing the self-inflicted wounds of what happens 
when they, when they tied themselves to the fates of the kingdoms around them. And in this abject despair that Israel was feeling, the prophet offers a message of hope. As bad as it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, as bad as it's going to get for you, that is not the end of the story. I don't know what to do with an image like this juxtaposed with those images of finality that we just read. Especially when Peter explicitly says, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is what's going to happen to you. This, to me, makes it, uh, underscores just how hard it is to really uh, to place your bet on one view of hell against all others. There is a tradition that's always been present within the Christian tradition to say that because of passages like this, of which there are many, the final outcome for people who both followed God and didn't is universal restoration. Whatever they did, however bad it got, how final that destruction seemed, it is not so insurmountable a task for God to work through them and save them and redeem them and restore them. That is a doctrine that Christians historically have called universal reconciliation. So we talked about a few different major images, right? Eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, universal reconciliation. Those are some of the, the, uh, the kinds of stories to have in your mind when you try to think about what happens to people after they die. Now, one could ask, uh, you know, what changes for you if it turns out that God ultimately will save every single person who ever lived? Or if it turns out that the ultimate fate of those who rejected God is death and it's not eternal torture or something like that. There are several different kinds of emotions that you may be going through if this is the first time you've heard a case laid out in this way. Some of them I've heard over the years when I've had conversations like this. Some of those reactions are, well, that's not fair. That is a reaction that comes up when you contemplate these alternative scenarios for hell. If everyone gets to be saved, then why did I spend all that time and effort following Jesus if I could have been living like the heathens all along? Literally. People have told me that at the thought or the idea of universal reconciliation. Other people have said, then there's no urgency in sharing the gospel with people since they don't really have to believe it. Because no matter what happens, in the end, it all works out. Some people would even say, then there's no point in me believing the gospel since, hey, again, it'll all work out in the end anyway. Now, if what I've shared with you today conjures those thoughts then my advice to you is don't put any more effort into following Jesus. Don't share the good news with other people and don't believe it yourself. Because if you're doing all of this because you're afraid that if you don't, you will be tortured forever, then I am telling you, you are going down a road that leads to a lot of guilt and shame and hurt and self-inflicted wounds. That is not a road that you want to go down. I did not become a follower of Jesus because I was afraid of being tortured in hell. I became a follower of Jesus because I believe that God is good and Jesus is beautiful. He is compelling. I want to follow him. 
And if you feel no sense of urgency, if you find out that maybe God will make it all work out in the end, then I'm sorry, you must live a pretty privileged life in a bubble because there are hells all around us, ones that you are creating for other people, ones that you create for yourself. And these hells are rapidly increasing. It is like fire that spreads, that can have eternal consequences if you are not careful. There is a sense of urgency built in. God's kingdom is coming. What are you going to do about it? You're going to sit around and let the hells around you fester? I don't think that that is an approach that is feasible no matter what your view of hell is. And here's another thing. If you think that following Jesus is easier if you embrace that kind of God because that God is nicer and it's easier to palate, uh, it's more palatable to deal with a nicer God, then I would also say that you're mistaken. That doesn't make it easier at all. Because it's easy to want God to be like that. We want God to be the kind of God that can overcome any obstacle with love and forgiveness. That no matter what we do to each other, God can reconcile everything together. We want God to be like that. But it is very hard to be like that God. If your image of God is one that pursues reconciliation at all costs across the universe throughout all ages, I would ask you, are you willing to do that with people who have wronged you? Can you love enemies unconditionally? Can you forgive 70 times 7 as New Testament writers describe it? Will you rejoice when you find out that God's family includes people that you hated? Can you die for people who will never appreciate what you have done for them? Can you never give up on people who've disappointed you time and time again? Can you believe all things and hope all things as the Apostle Paul describes it? Can you do that? Because that is very, very hard. You want to believe in a God that does that. I want you to be able to do that yourself. Now, if reconciliation of all things, that is hard and it's messy work. I personally believe that I've seen that manifested in the love of God expressed in Jesus. And I want to follow Jesus, to go where he goes, to teach what he taught, to do what he did. I'm not sure what will happen after I die, or the precise mechanics thereof. But I do know that if Jesus is there, then there's no place I'd rather be. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this space to be able to think through questions within our community that um, have challenged us and have um, caused us to think hard about who you are and what love looks like. We ask that you, um, you grant us spirits of humility to be with each other in conversation about how to think about hell, about how to understand your wrath, that we utilize the full weight of the scriptures that you've given us and the traditions that our brothers and sisters in Christ have handed down to us and the philosophers and thinkers and artists who have dared to reflect on what happens to us after we die. Thank you for giving us life and for giving it to us here and now that we can have it abundantly. Help us to eradicate the hells around us and to always be sensitive to those people who are experiencing the brunt of your wrath right now because of the choices that we make. Lord, help us to love each other. Help us to be you on earth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.